Read and hear more about important news and policy issues at ncpolicywatch.com. This is News and Views. Welcome back to News and Views. I'm Rob Schofield. Many critics have rightfully observed that it's a manufactured controversy designed by national political operatives looking to fan and capitalize on irrational white fears. But whatever its origins, there is clearly a debate underway right now across North Carolina and the nation over how our schools teach kids about race and American history. In the North Carolina General Assembly, Republican lawmakers have advanced legislation that seeks to micromanage the subject, while in some counties, local school boards have even gone so far as to enact rules that require teachers to inform their students that all people who contributed to American society, whatever that means, must be recognized as, quote, reformists, innovators, and heroes. Fortunately, most of our professional educators have been spared from such absurd and illogical directives and left mostly free to do what they're trained to do. One of those professionals is Rodney Pierce, an award-winning middle school social studies teacher in the Nash Rocky Mount Public Schools. And recently I sat down with Mr. Pierce to get his take on the history debate and a number of other issues facing our public schools. Well, Rodney Pierce, welcome to News and Views. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Mr. Schofield. I'm very appreciative of the opportunity. A lot of questions I want to ask you, but let's begin with just how you and your colleagues and students at Red Oak Middle are doing during these challenging times. Seems maybe, at least for now, some of the worst of the pandemic is eased, but how's everybody holding up? From the onset, Mr. Schofield, I do want to say that my thoughts and views are my own and don't represent my district. I believe that we are doing pretty well, all things considered. Obviously, it's challenging times. There are all types of things you have to consider. Uh, Obviously, everyone's physical health, you know, not only of students, but of your coworkers, yourself. Well, more importantly, and and definitely more importantly, through this time frame that we've gone through what what the past couple of years has been mental health. Yeah, I teach eighth grade. These kids haven't been to school since they were in sixth grade, you know, physically in a building, you know, most of them, you know. So I have noticed somewhat that you do have kids who tend to be struggling with the emotional issues a bit more than usual. I mean, they're middle schoolers. They're going to struggle. (laughs) (laughs) You know, they're still trying to figure out who they are. But you have kids who are struggling, I feel sometimes, struggling a bit more with uh, emotional issues than usual. I've had students that, you know, you have to be a lot more gentle with, Mm -hmm. you know, as opposed to being a little more firm with in the past. And then you have kids who are, you know, just trying to get back into the groove of things. I think the first few weeks of school was very... Uh, challenging for us as teachers and for the students because everybody had to get back into the routine of being in the school building and and leaving at this time in the morning to go to the restroom, going to the lunchroom, coming in, going to the restroom after you get back from lunch, you know, because we can take the kids outside or we can eat inside. I mostly opt to eat inside, but you can't take them outside. When they get outside, it can get a little wild and, you know, you want to let them run and have fun. So uh, you have that going on. And then you have, you know, we have car line, It was kind of crazy the first few weeks of school, but I think we are doing good. I'm very appreciative of my administrators uh, and my colleagues. I think we are doing very well, all things considered. Thank you for doing that. Right on top of all that, of course, even as you're coping with these unprecedented times, we're also coping with a lot of unprecedented debates that are going on and sort of roiling our public education world in recent months. And one has been I think what many would properly describe as a bit of a manufactured controversy, but nonetheless, it's become one anyway about how we teach American history, and in particular, a formerly rather obscure graduate school concept known as critical race theory. And you as an American history, as a history teacher, obviously, I'm sure you have some thoughts about this whole debate about how we teach American history and what's a controversy and perhaps what shouldn't be a controversy. 
my thoughts on it, I have experienced the blowback from parents and families. I've experienced blowback from people in, in higher positions. I dare not say what positions they inhabit, mm-hmm. but uh, in higher positions, we've experienced collectively as teachers to blow back from state officials, state elected officials. And it's an unprecedented time because it's like, to me, somewhat is similar to the redemption period following reconstruction. You know, <laughs> you, you feel like you make all these gains through the summer of 2020 and the racial justice protest and, you know, pulling down of statues of people. I think that we for the most part, I'd like to think we all can generally agree weren't necessarily the best folks we should be erecting statues to. Right. But then you have people clutching their pearls because they're like, oh, my God, we're in unprecedented times. This is not America. And it's like, no, if you know the history, this has always been America. <laughs> I showed a slide, PowerPoint slide to my students the other day of the statue of King George III being pulled down in Manhattan in New York following the public reading of the Declaration of Independence. You know, and I told them, you know. Pulling down statues is what we do. <laughs> this is what we do as Americans. I said, this is nothing new. You know, they didn't like King George, you know. So when that declaration was read, they said, okay, let's get rid of them. Boom. They pulled it down. I said, you know, you have a lot of Confederate monuments, Confederate memorials or markers, statues that people don't care for. I remember the one being pulled down uh, in front of the Durham County Courthouse uh, back in uh, 2017 following Charlottesville or that weekend of Charlottesville. I remember the one being pulled down in front of a Warren County courthouse. You know, I live in Halifax County. Warren County is right next door. Uh, The one that was pulled down in Battle Park here in Rocky Mountain, Nash County, where I work. These things are nothing new. And if we are going to really teach the history of our country, we need to teach all of it, not just the parts of it that make us comfortable. Teaching about the Confederacy or the Civil War, we have to talk about chattel slavery. I mean, that's what the Confederacy, the Confederate Constitution said that their government was going to allow by law. That's what Alexander Hamilton Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy, said that the Confederate government was going to be based upon the inferiority of the Negro or of Black people. So we got we have to be real about this thing. And, and I don't even like using the word facts anymore, Mr. Schofield. I say, where does the evidence lead you? Where does the evidence lead you? Present the information to the students. Tell them what's there. Show them what's there. Let them make their own observations. Let them draw come to their own conclusions. And I don't think we give students, uh, young people, enough credit sometimes to be able to handle the things that we sometimes as teachers want to teach them. We don't give them enough credit to be able to handle it. And I believe sometimes parents and families jump the gun sometimes and, and assume that, oh, you're going to make my child feel guilty or you're going to make my child feel uncomfortable. When maybe it's, it's, it's the parent or guardian that feels uncomfortable. The child is like, you know what? I got to learn this so I can pass the test and be promoted. <laughs> you know, that's all they care about. You and, know, and the uh, list of things that, that middle schoolers, which undoubtedly, as you have already alluded to, middle schoolers have a, an enormous a lot of, uh, amount of challenges. Yes, sir. Is it safe to say that maybe uh, the details of who was an unpleasant character in American history is probably not real high on the list of things they're losing a lot of sleep over? No, sir. I, I don't think so. I, I had a young I'm... man ask me the other day. He said, I believe we were talking about Thomas Jefferson. So I told him about Sally Hemings. I told him about Jefferson writing that black people stink but he couldn't seem to keep his hands off this young lady <laughs> to the tune of, you know, having six children with her. And um, one of the young men raised his hand and said, Mr. Pierce, is there anybody good in history? And I said, good as a point of view, sir. You know, it's, it's a matter of perspective. Your hero, you know, as in the Sons of Liberty can be someone else's villain. Right. You know, the Sons of Liberty were looked at as heroes for the most part by colonists, but the British government, the, the actual government of that day, those officials looked at them as people who were criminals, 
You know, mm-hmm. these guys ransacked the homes of British officials. They burned things in the street. They tarred and feathered British officials. They vandalized their property. Your revolutionary could be someone else's domestic terrorist. Right. It's all a matter of perspective. You know, I try to make that connection between, okay, these guys were, you know, doing protests in the street, you know, sometimes getting violent. Let's look at the summer of 2020 when we had protests in the street that sometimes turned violent. Both people were fighting for their concept of justice. Now, you might agree with one and disagree with the other, but the principles, the premise is the same. Coming up next, part two of my conversation with Rodney Pierce. Don't go away. Read and hear more about important news and policy issues at ncpolicywatch.com. This is News and Views. Welcome back to News and Views. I'm Rob Schofield. In part one of my conversation with award-winning middle school social studies teacher Rodney Pierce, we delved into the controversy roiling American public education right now about how to teach American history and the argument advanced by some on the political right that schools must carefully censor how they teach about racism and its legacy in our country lest they harm the sensibilities of white students. In part two of our chat, we continued our discussion of questions of race and racism, and in particular, how our state could do a vastly better job of training, recruiting, and retaining teachers of color. Mr. Pierce also shared his views on the overarching issue of education funding and resources, particularly as it affects low-wealth rural districts like the ones that filed the landmark Leandro School funding lawsuit. The county of Johnston and some other places around the country have been passing these uh, ordinances and rules that purport to tell teachers that they must present everybody who, quote unquote, contributed to American society as a reformist, an innovator and a hero. I'm utterly confused by this. Can you imagine any way you could actually teach American history with any level of authenticity? And um, (laughs) if you were trying to abide by such a such a standard as that? It would be challenging. And and first of all, my my heart goes out to all of my colleagues in Johnston County who are who are tasked with teaching social studies and history, civics and all of the other humanities uh, who are going through some very, very arduous circumstances. It would be challenging because at the end of the day, who's saying what's what? Okay, if I have to teach that all of these people were reformists and heroes and things of that nature, who's deciding that this person is a hero? Does this person know history? Is this person certified to teach? Is this person licensed to teach? It's kind of like HB 324. You know, who determines what makes someone uncomfortable? To me, it's always about who's making the rules or who's making the policies, who's making the laws. And do they have a good idea of what they're talking about? Or is this just a political witch hunt or an agenda to try to win more seats in the midterms or more seats during municipal elections? It's, it's confusing, you know, and it makes people want to quit, which some people have. You know, uh, it wears on our mental health when this is a time we all should be practicing self-care. And, you know, I think a lot of times people forget teachers have families, too. I have three biological children, one at each grade level, elementary, middle and high school. And so when I leave my other children at school, I have to come home to my own. And sometimes those things that you experience, those phone calls, those emails you get, those meetings you have to have with administrators, the things that you're told are being discussed about you by, by people at higher levels. It can be a little scary. It can be very scary, you know, because this is your livelihood. This is how you take care of your family as well as yourself. And I think yes. sometimes people don't have any empathy when it comes to stuff like that. As the husband of a longtime special ed teacher in Wake County, I can attest to any of those <laughs> same ex- experiences. Our, our time is limited. We're talking with Rodney Pierce, who's an award-winning middle school social studies teacher in the Nash Rocky Mount Public Schools. Before I let you go, Rodney, I want to ask you, you've sort of just alluded to it, this whole issue of recruiting and developing and retaining good teachers, especially teachers of color, especially black men, because we know that we have such a 
a, a need in that regard. Yes, sir. You've spoken out on this issue before. Do you have any thoughts that maybe our listeners would care to hear about what we can do to do a better job of this in North Carolina? Yes, sir. Uh, well, first and foremost, we have to be intentional. We have to be intentional. I think there are a bevy, a multitude of resources that are developed to when it comes to teachers of color, particularly black men. I'll, I'll speak particularly on that because that's really my passion when it comes to this and minority males in general. I think we spend a multitude of resources on the incarceration, on the supervision of black men. Black men make up about 50 percent of the population in state prisons, whereas we make up just under 5 percent of the K through 12 educators in uh, North Carolina, 2 percent nationwide. We have groups like Profound Gentlemen. We have groups like the Bond Institute. We have groups all throughout the country who are about this work. And if we can spend millions of dollars to make sure the black men are convicted of crimes and that, uh, you know, we make sure that they're incarcerated and we have enough prisons to house them, then we should be able to spend millions of dollars toward their education, toward developing K through 12 educators who are black men who can work with arguably the most vulnerable student population, which are black male students who, uh, if you look at the statistics in public education, there's always some disparity, some negative disparity associated with Black male students. I just think that we need to make more of an effort to do that. Uh, The Teaching Fellows Program, while it has been expanded, it needs to be expanded to all colleges in North Carolina, like it was originally, not just a select few or select few minority-serving institutions or HBCUs. And there needs to be intent on working with Black male students in middle school and talking to them about potentially becoming teachers down the road. Now, the General Assembly can look to the legislature in South Carolina with the Call Me Mr. program and take notes from them and take notes from them and just follow their playbook. Like I said, we have profound gentlemen. We have other groups here in North Carolina that are already doing the work of recruiting and retaining minority male educators. So why not just follow the playbook that's already been set? But one thing they will have to do because of the socioeconomic position of African-American males they're going to have to increase salaries. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. And, and that's we, a whole other fight altogether. <laughs> yeah, I, well, you, you, you mentioned funding. I just saw a report recently that indicated that in North Carolina, where you indicated half the people incarcerated in our prisons are, are Black, we spend three times more per incarcerated individual than we do on a student. We could literally double what we spend per yes, pupil sir. on students, and it would still yes, only sir. be two-thirds of what we spend on yes, incarcerated sir. individuals. It seems like it might be... a Pay me now, pay me later priority there. Right, right. As long as I've got you and you raised the whole issue of, of teacher salaries before we, I let you go, yes, I guess, sir. talk to us about funding in your school system, about your sense of maybe the morale of educators who inhabit your school, how they're doing with respect to these. We know that funding has been very parsimonious, if that's the right term, in recent years. Mm-hmm. The General Assembly has been very conservative in terms of its outlays for public education. Indeed, you mentioned South Carolina. They've kind of passed us when it comes to yes, per pupil spending. Definitely. Um, are you feeling that on the ground? Do you, are you aware of that? Are the people in your school aware of the fact that funding has been so limited in recent years? I think, I think certain teachers in the school are aware of it. I really don't pay a lot of attention to it on a school level because sure. of what I teach. You know, you really don't you know, need that much but um, as, a, as a graduate of Halifax County Schools, as a parent of students in Halifax County Schools, Halifax County Schools being one of the original plaintiffs in the Leandro case, right. uh, the Leandro case originally being filed in 1994 by the school district board attorney, uh, Larry Armstrong, in 1994. I was a sophomore in high school, so I am a <laughs> Leandro kid. I know the challenges uh, from working in the district, from being a student in the district, from being a parent of students in the district. 
I know firsthand what this lack of funding uh, looks like. Um, you know, you have generation after generation after generation who don't have what they need to be able to compete at those levels with other students from a Wake County, from a Durham County. You know, it's a shame. Nash County Public Schools, I don't feel it that much personally. I could be wrong, but I don't, I don't live in Nash, so I'm not that much aware of it. But mm -hmm. I know the stipend they have for teachers is bigger. <laughs> yeah. So there is a, a bigger tax base. There are more businesses and it is more industrious in terms of development as opposed to Halifax County. So sure. when I compare the two, for them to be 30 minutes apart, it's like they're like worlds apart. I mean, one of the reasons that I left my, my former district was to try to make more money. I mean, I have a family. Sure, sure. Anybody in their right mind wants to make more money to take care of their family. So um, those are just some of the challenges that districts like Halifax and others face when it comes to recruiting and retaining those teachers. Uh, funding um, plays a big role. And I mean, if we want these districts to do better academically and give them what they need, give them what they need. I, I often hear legislators say you can't just throw money at a problem and make it better. But it's like you don't have problems throwing money at other things and making them better <laughs> or, or passing these austerity budgets. So uh, let's just prioritize and do what we need to do and see what happens. And, and don't think it's going to happen overnight. Sometimes these things take five to 10 years to show any growth. And I think we just got to give ourselves an honest chance at fully funding our K-12 schools in, um, in North Carolina. Rodney Pierce is an award-winning middle school social studies teacher in the Nash Rocky Mount Public Schools at Red Oak Middle School. Rodney, thanks so much for your service to our children, to our state. Uh, this has been a great conversation. I look forward perhaps to catching up with you again real soon. Thank you so much, Mr. Schofield, for what you all do, and thank you again for the opportunity. Have a great day. Well, that's it for this edition of News and Views. Remember, you can check us out online and subscribe for free to some of our state's best news coverage and political commentary at ncpolicywatch.com. You can also listen to all of our interviews and commentaries on Apple Podcasts. For producer Clayton Hinkle, this is Rob Schofield. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to News and Views. A weekly look at state and policy issues is a production of North Carolina Policy Watch. Visit them online at ncpolicywatch.com.